I would say the first, the first thing I knew is that I didn't want to work in corporate America anymore. I lost my job unexpectedly and I went to a career fair, um, you know, because up to that point, I still only knew, you know, the 40 hour work week and the corporate world. So I went to this career fair and it just didn't feel right. I probably was there about 15 minutes. I don't even know if I even visited a table or a booth. And I left. And when I left, I was so relieved and felt overcome with joy that I knew that that world was over for me. I didn't know where I was going, but that was done. Welcome to the What Word podcast. My guest today is Vanessa Blake. I'm excited about this interview because I've known Vanessa for some time. Vanessa, along with her husband, Corey, the Commissioner Blake, are wonderful members of a faith community in Brooklyn called the Kingsborough Temple of Seventh-day Adventist. I'm inspired by their acts of kindness because if you are alone during the holidays, you're always welcome to their home. A post will generally go out which says, we're having lunch or dinner. You're welcome to come and you don't have to be alone. Vanessa has also produced recently a series of short videos entitled, I'm a Black Man, I'm Not a Threat. They are some of the most affirming, validating, empowering videos I've seen in some time, and we'll discuss those today. But just so you know, she's a filmmaker and visual artist, and we'll discuss some of her films today. She is passionate about her work and has an incredible journey, and I believe you'll be inspired by this interview. So welcome to the Water Word podcast, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. To ask you a little bit about your childhood. Hmm, my childhood. Um, so I grew up in a very close-knit family. There's me, my sister. I'm the oldest. There's only two of us. My mom and my dad. And we grew up in Brooklyn, um, East New York. And... We lived in a building with my mother's, one of my mother's brothers and his family. And directly next door in another building was my mother's sister, her husband, and then another one, another one of my mother's brothers and his wife. So when I say we were close, we were close. So we all, um, we spent so much time together. I, I would say that growing up, I didn't even have too many outside friends because my family, they were, they were my friends. Um, we did, did everything together, uh, going to the beach, going to the park, going um, to church, um, holidays. Um, it was, and even back then, also in Brooklyn, the neighborhood was so, and the community was so different. You know, it was a different time. Um, everyone looked out for everyone. We all knew each other. Um, so even outside of my family, there was this tremendous sense of community. So I would say that I grew up with, you know, tons and tons of memories um, of having a really good childhood. And then we moved to Queens, um, I think when I was about 12 and a half. So we moved to Queens and two of our relatives followed, followed to Queens as well. So not close not so far but not so close either but still followed to queens um so we remain you know very close um as a family to this day it's it's difficult for me sometimes during the holidays because everyone now has their own families right 
So some of my um, um, cousins live out of state. Um, so it's, it's been, it's challenging for me. I'm really sentimental about the holidays. So it's been challenging because we grew up as such a close-knit family. Um, my mom and dad worked, my dad was a corrections officer and my mom was uh, a nurse's aide um, in, in a nursing home for about 40 years. My dad retired early um, due to an injury. Um, so, you know, I get my um, hard work, my work ethic from the two of them. You touched on close-knit family. And I mentioned earlier the Christmas, um, I don't want to say the movement, but that Christmas spirit that is expressed by you and Corey. And I fondly, I have fond memories of those postings where you'll say, you know, if you don't have a family or you feel um, alone during the holidays, we're having dinner by our home, you don't. And the words, the last couple of words, you don't have to be alone. Is that why? on those holidays you share posts like the posts you've shared in past times past yeah it is because i know what it's like to grow up with family and to know um, how much family means um, and when you have really good family um, we all look out for each other we pray for each other we support each other so when you have really good family not everyone has that um, so i try to be mindful and cognizant of that so I don't know how many years now, it's been quite a number of years now that I'll post that um, and let people know that they have a place to go. And we've had people, we've had people come. Um, and it's, and I've really been grateful to know that because it even takes a lot for them on the other side to say, yes, I'm lonely, right? I'm lonely and I don't want to be alone. It even takes a lot for that person to, to open up their heart and show how vulnerable they are as well. And we welcome them. There are no strangers in our families. When you come to our family, after like meeting you for like 10 minutes, you're family now. So that's how we welcome people that way. So I grew up that way. So it, it, it must be especially sobering for you, for you just imagining what individuals must be going through with COVID. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, um, I can't even, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine what they're going through. And for a while, so my dad is in a nursing home. Uh, he's been in a nursing home for over a year now and we haven't seen him since March. Um, so that's been, well, we had, I'm sorry, we did have just last week, we had a um, controlled visit where we could see him for about 20 minutes and with this barrier in between us. But we hadn't seen him for a while. And then even my mom, she has pre-existing conditions. So early on in COVID, I did not visit her for um, probably about two and a half, three months. And that was really, really difficult. Um, but, you know, what I do is I keep myself safe. I tell my husband, you need to stay safe. And he needs to stay, stay safe because I don't want him to give anything to me that I then might pass on to my mother right that's how i'm thinking about this you know i'm trying to keep myself safe so that i can keep my mother safe um, and my dad thank god has not contracted covid at all um, during this time that he's been in a nursing home so i can't um, imagine these people who are saying goodbye to their loved ones over facetime or not even having that opportunity 
and the other person, the person who's dying, being alone in those moments. Um, this pandemic, um, I don't know, it has really just um, done a job on a lot of people, right? And it's opened up, it's, it's made us think about things that I, we probably took for granted. Um, you know, telling our loved ones that we love them. Like my dad, my parents, I know they love me, but I could count on my hand how many times they told me they love me. But my dad now that he's in a nursing home, since the pandemic, when I speak to him, before we hang up, he says, okay, take care, I love you. So that never happened before. And you know, I love you too, dad, take care. You know, so this pandemic is, it's absolutely terrible, but there is a little bit of good that's come out of it too, right? Where people now get to spend time with their families. Maybe they took their families for granted. They were so busy doing so many things that didn't even really matter. Um, and now you're forced to sort of reconnect with your family and what's important. So Vanessa, I want to tell you how you've inspired me and uh, the you know, impact is far reaching, but I, I have a, a male book club. Well, it's a book club compri comprised of men, all males. And I recently I've been checking in with them, like, how are you brothers? How was your mental health? A lot of that was inspired or is inspired by those short feature films you've been putting out. I'm not a threat. But if you could just tell us about what was the drive behind the I'm Not a Threat series, as I love to call it. Sure. I um, was scrolling through Instagram one night and I saw my, one of my cousins posted this picture and it was titled, I'm not, a, it was titled Black Man Challenge. And basically it was just affirming the world, you know, that I'm a black man, I don't tear down, I build up. Um, and as I was noticing a few more people, a few more men posted that, I had this thought like, I think this is great, but what if we could actually hear from them? What if we could just hear what they're feeling and what they're thinking? I am a black man. You don't have to fear me. You can approach me. You can come near me. I am a black man. I'm proud of my melanin, my ancestry, my people, and my heritage. I am a black man. Although my people come from trauma, I was taught how to love, how to respect, and how to honor. I am a black man. Yes, my name is so unique. Olivier represents my true nature of peace. I am a black man. I love my black life. I love my black family. I love my black wife. I love my black friends, my black community, and its residents. I still imagine that we have a black president. I am a black man. I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to see a cage, nor do I want to see a grave. I am a black man. I'm aware of my strength, given to me by my ancestors, though life was intense. I am a black man who will always persevere. I will walk what I talk. I will speak after I hear. I am a black man, so I deserve your respect. I am a black man, and I am not a threat. So I just reached out to a few people. I didn't know what I wanted in the beginning, but I reached out to a few people and pretty quickly after I started re receiving a few videos, I knew what I wanted it to be. Um, I wanted black men to just 
speak. I didn't want anyone else to speak for them. I didn't want anyone to interpret what they think the black man means. Let's hear from them what they think. And that's it. And I wanted to try to change the narrative that's out there about black men because there is this generalization that's out there about black men, um, a negative one. And I wanted to sort of um, fight against that narrative. I'm a black man. Not a threat. I know that when you see me, you see danger. You see peril. I feel your fear. So when I see you walking up the street, I cross to the other side to ease your fear. When I'm on the elevator and I see you step on, I graciously step to the front just so that you feel safe. And with every step, resentment and bitterness infest me. I'm a black man. I'm not a threat. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a brother. I'm a son. I'm an uncle. I'm a mentor. And more importantly, I'm a child of God made in his image. And that, that right there makes me worthy of respect, makes me worthy of love. I'm a black man. I'm not a threat. So instead of seeing me just as a black man, know that this black man is a human worthy of love worthy of their respect. I'm a black man, I'm not a threat. It's significant also, and it's just tying in with something you said that you wanted to just have them speak because I find so often that black men aren't allowed to one, just be, and two, just express how they're actually feeling, how we're actually feeling. Right, mm. right. And you know, that's layered that, you know, that goes to, it's so layered, but I, I really appreciate that work. And I, you know, I want to tell you up front for me, it's, you know, it's affirmation, it's validating because here you get an opportunity to speak uninterrupted, that's right. you get to speak your truth. Mm-hmm. And I could tell with a number of the gentlemen who presented that it was part therapy as well, because it's almost like you're conveying this truth in the moment and you're hearing it. Right. And I've seen individuals um, in the series, um, you could tell it's, 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 it's personal, it's sobering and it's validating. So I, you know, I want our guests, our, our listeners actually to, um, if you have an opportunity, check out the I'm Not A Threat series. It's it's on Instagram, it's on Facebook. And I'll, you know, towards the end, I'll ask Vanessa to just tell our listeners where to find, you know, sure. her work. But I want to talk about filmmaking, um, visual, your visual artistry, and um, how was that started? And what connections did that have with coming from a large family, if there was any? Um, so the, the filmmaking actually started, was sparked at Kingsborough at the church. Um, when I 
joined the church, they had a thriving audio video visual ministry and I joined and um, there was someone in charge of the video side named Monique Anderson who decided to do a documentary um, about the church. I think it was for the 15th year anniversary. And I helped with, I helped with that some, and that just sparked something in me. Um, there was, I had been searching for a long time for something. I didn't know what that thing was. Um, but once I joined Kingsboro and I saw the AV ministry, um, something felt right about that within me. Um, so I started doing that um, and I tried to make a film prob probably long before I was ready. Um, I remember the first, uh, the first day of filming, um, the church allowed me to use the administrative building and I used some actors from the church and it was a disaster. And not for the actors, it was a disaster on my part because I wasn't prepared for what it actually takes to make a film. So um, I remember driving home and I was so defeated and I was talking it through with my husband. And the thing about him is he's always, he's very even killed and always positive. And we just talked it through and you know, I was ready to give up, but he wouldn't let me. And as we talked it through, I'm a very organized person. I just needed to tap into that, right? I was doing too much creative and not balancing the creative with my analytical and organizational skills. Um, and I just needed to balance that. And we came back the next day and I felt like a new person the next day. I felt totally prepared. Um, for what we were doing in the moment, but still not ready, right? So, and then the photography happened because we went to visit, um, my grandfather had passed and we went down and we were going through some things and I found a film camera um, in his things. And I brought that film camera home and I started to play around with it. Um, and that's really how photography started. I still, am not great with a film camera. I shoot digitally, but that's how the photography started. So I would say church um, and then, you know, just some things within my family as well. But I would say that creative spark was probably given to me by my mom. When we were kids and we lived in Brooklyn, um, Star at City was, was just built in Brooklyn and she would take us over there to the park and we would just hang out at the parks there and sit in the grass and have picnics. Um, and that small thing that my mom did made me realize that there's more. And I never forgot that. There's more, the world is bigger than the block that we live on. The world is bigger than the two buildings that we share with our family. That small thing never left me. And that always sparked something in me. And I knew I was looking for something more, some other way to sort of impact things. Um, so that's really how I got started between photography and filmmaking. And filmmaking includes storytelling. It includes storytelling. Um, and that is something that 
um, I like to do. I like to tell stories. Um, I, and I'm, and I'm totally self-taught other than what I learned at Kingsboro beyond Kingsboro. I'm self-taught between YouTube, um, trial and error. Um, that's another thing that I get from my mom. She does not quit. She does not let anything as she would say, beat her. So I'm going to figure out a way to make it work. Um, and funny enough, I had taken this class at NYU video production class. Um, and I took the class because I felt like, oh, I'm self-taught. I need to go, you know, take an actual class and make sure that I'm not missing anything. And it was so interesting when I took the class, I would say that 90% of what was taught in the class I knew. And I was, I, yeah, I was really, really surprised by that. Um, so, you know, I would say to people, don't doubt yourself. Um, just move forward with that thing that you love um, and things will work out. Just put in the work, the time, study, practice, and it'll pay off. So you, in 2018, you wrote and produced your first stage play, The Race Before, a story of liberty and justice for some. Could you explain? <laughs> yeah. So um, I had never intended to um, uh, work in the area of stage plays. But what I've come to realize is that creativity comes the way that it comes. Expression comes the way that it comes. Um, and I, I had wanted to do something at the church for Black History Month for a number of years. And I just, you know, ran from it. I didn't commit to it. Um, and then finally, I did commit to it. And I put this team together, <laughs> really dynamic team. Um, and we began meeting a few months before. And then there was this tragedy in my family where my dad fell and it sort of interfered with, you know, how long we could, how often we could meet and plan. So what was going to be um, this sort of really intense month long uh, celebration turned out to be a couple of snippets every week during main service and then the culmination of one big thing on the last uh, week of the month. And that turned out to be a play. Um, I probably wrote that three weeks before we did it. So it was a really, no, it was probably longer than that. I think two months before. So it was a really short turnaround and it was really abstract. Um, and the reason why it was abstract is because we only had the one afternoon and you only have a certain amount of time. So I knew it couldn't be sort of in depth and we didn't want to um, leave anything out. We wanted to try to touch on everything from slavery um, up to right what's happening today where cops are shooting us still, right? So we really touched, so that's, you know, that's the title, right? Liberation for some, but not all, right? Um, so we wanted to explore that in sort of a really abstract way. And I think it was pretty well received. We will return after a short break. My blackness is beautiful. From my crown of hair that reaches for the sky to the soles of my feet grounding me in this land, bathed in the blood of my ancestors. It is boundless and unending creativity in the face of 
policies, practices, and perceptions meant to limit the reaches of my existence. It is grace when faced with a persistent danger, even in our most intimate moments of life. I am a descendant of survivors who weathered brutal and contemptuous affronts to their humanity. I am the progeny of scientists, scholars, philosophers, and artists who shaped cultures and altered histories with gifts and legacies that were radical acts of benevolence towards an unworthy world. I am a black man and I am not a threat. I think I've asked almost every creative I've spoken to this question and I'll ask you this in another way. You're preparing, writing, telling stories which highlight the fact that people of color move in spaces and live differently than the, I guess, within the culture and without. Right. How heavy is that weight and burden as a storyteller writing these? I mean, they have redemptive features, but they are, they're also earnestly painful. Yeah. What is that weight like? Um, it's, it's burdensome. My husband and I, I don't know if you're familiar with the show uh, United Shades um, on CNN, uh, W. Kamau Bell. We watched the first episode of this new season on um, Sunday night, I think. And I was completely depressed when we finished. And I said, I even said that to him. I said, this is so depressing, like 30 minutes into it. So depressing because, you know, the topic was, um, oh gosh. Uh, white supremacy and how it's so rampant still, you know, how people thought because Barack Obama was elected president, <laughs> you know, those things suddenly went away. Um, and it was just very depressing. And I think that as a creative, you take those things in, you know, I think everyday people do as well, but we take those, we, we internalize those and we try to figure out a way of expression, right? How do we, how do I express this in a way that's impactful? You know, I'm a black, I'm not a threat series, right? I'm a black man and I'm not a threat. That's the way for me to sort of express what I feel was happening to black men, right? But giving them the power and the control and the voice because I don't, I don't want that, you know? I just want to get it out there. So you do sort of internalize these things and they take a toll on you and you have to find uh, moments of peace, right? You have to take walks. You have to just stand in the sun, uh, you know, be one with nature. Um, you do internalize these things and they don't always find their way out, right? You, you don't always come up with a form of expression for them. So sometimes you just live with these things um, as everyone else does. So it can be difficult. Your family is a large family, and I'm, I'm going to make some assumptions about your large, close-knit family. I envision individuals who um, nine-to-fivers, uh, put in some years in various occupations, and you're indicating I'm a creative and I'm going to take the, low, the road less traveled. Right. How was that um, 
if it was a verbal meeting or with implicit or explicit, how was that when your family was told, um, I'm, I'm taking the road, let's travel? Um, I would say, so my cousins my age and their children, in particular, their children understand. But I would say my mom, that age group, my mom and dad for years, you know, didn't understand and would say things like, so when are you going to get a real job or, you know, and it got to the point where I would just stop talking about things. So I would do things and they wouldn't even know what I was doing because they didn't seem in my, in my estimation, didn't seem to understand, but maybe I didn't give them enough credit, right? Maybe I didn't give them enough credit by taking time and trying to really um, explain to them what it is that I was trying to do. And I would say that they still may not completely understand what I'm doing, but the question about getting a real job has gone away. So I would say that they've just accepted that I'm doing things differently. Um, I'm happy. Um, I have freedom to, you know, go to lunch with my mother if I want to, just on the random you know, to be there for them right now on the random. So I think they're, I think they're okay with it. But my younger cousins, they really give me life because when I talk to them, um, they're like, we're, we're so inspired by what you're doing. Um, we really appreciate what you're doing. Um, and hopefully it's given them permission to, to chase their dreams, whatever their dreams are, because that's really all um, I hope that my life is an example for people to chase their dreams. Um, I think we are all born with a specific reason for being here. Um, and I think that we should figure out what that is and move towards it. And, you know, we discussed family and I think something you highlighted is families can not be you know, overly excited about your direction, but they'll still provide support in tangible ways at times. And I'm sure you have uh, stories about ways even your parents supported your, yeah. your, your movement. Yeah. Yeah. My, um, so as I spoke about my mom and dad earlier, they didn't in the beginning necessarily understand what I was doing. Um, so when I got ready to shoot this film in my solitude, I decided I would do some fundraising um, because we needed a location, we needed to rent equipment, we had to feed people, you know, all those things take money. So I did this fundraiser and one day I went to see my mom and I said, hey, listen, because I know like 70% of the people at her church, I was like, can you just ask people for $20 here and there? And she was like, yeah, for what? And I told her, she was like, okay, I'll ask. I think three days later she called and she said, hey, um, I was talking to your dad. I was like, okay, uh-huh. And we were talking about your movie and we wanted to donate some money. And I was like, okay, but you don't have to do that. And I was like, all right. She was like, yeah, we're going to give you a thousand dollars. And I was like, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so I was so moved by that gesture. I mean, to think that people who may not necessarily understand what you're doing 
but they love you and believe in you and want to support you no matter what, right? That is just um, a blessing to have in your life. And how did you come up with the titles for I'm looking at In My Solitude without knowing a lot about it? Could you tell listeners why that title? So In My Solitude is um, a short film that I am currently editing that I shot in um, February. Um, and it's about um, uh, a single child. Um, he is a black male. Um, he is struggling with some things um, in his life. And we just, the camera just sort of follows him over a course of two days. Um, so really, it's, in, it's what he's doing and how he's living in those quiet moments. Um, not when people are around, but in those quiet moments. Because I think we all do that, right? Don't we all sometimes live differently when people are around than when people aren't? We aren't, some of us are not happy, but people would never know it because of how we act when people are around, we put on this face. So really I wanted to look at, um, how this black man inputs and, and he's black for a reason um how he deals with the quiet moments and i think that the reason that he's a black man because again i wanted to sort of address um that black men suffer with depression they suffer with mental illness they you know just like everybody else right they're normal people just like everyone else and they suffer but the black man isn't always afforded the opportunity to be vulnerable um you know the the message is that you're not a man if you're vulnerable and that is like the total opposite of what you know a real man is um so i wanted to just explore that um, with this film and and being gladys <laughs> being gladys was it was a documentary um, about this um, artist named Gladys Grower in Newark, New Jersey. Um, she died, I think, in 2000, 2019, and she was 96. Um, she was really instrumental, instrumental in um, getting the art scene up in Newark. Um, there, was, there is a very, very much thriving art scene happening in Newark. Um, and I think people should actually visit um, and see what's happening. Um, there's art, there's music, there's poetry, all kinds of things happening in Newark. But Gladys Brower was um, really instrumental. And um, this documentary was to sort of celebrate her life and her legacy. Um, there were a lot of artists who got put on because of her. Um, and she never stopped creating. She never, she created until she couldn't create anymore um, because it was just a part of her. And she was also very um, socially and politically aware and conscious as well. She was very, um, very warm and, and very much to the point as well. <laughs> so it's a, it's a great loss for uh, Newark, but um, I'm glad that I was able to be a part of uh, this documentary, it's not my documentary. I, you know, held several roles. I conducted some interviews. I did some camera work. You know, I did some audio. So I, I you know, played several roles within the documentary. 
um, and she got to see it before she died. So that was like the icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. but, but I had no idea that, I mean, about the burgeoning International Film Festival. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. And that you won an award for a documentary. Uh, the Gladys Gower Brower um, documentary won Best Documentary at the International Film Festival, in Newark's International Film Festival um, in 2019, yeah. We did. I wasn't there that evening because it was uh, it was on Saturday, um, so I wasn't there. But I got the word shortly after that we had one. Um, That's awesome. It's amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. You're currently in the beginning stages of your next film project. Um, I'm actually thinking and working on, um, and I'm tossing some ideas around. Um, but I don't, I don't know yet. Um, I have a couple of ideas in mind. So I'm at the very beginning stages um, of trying to think about the next project as well as editing still this current project. Um, it's, it's a process and it's a little bit difficult for me because I'm not a natural writer. Um, so it's, it, it takes time for me to sort of flush out the idea. Um, and how I want to, what I want to say and how I want to say it. Even with um, In My Solitude, I wrote it because I wanted to do something and I was having trouble connecting with people. Um, so I wrote it. Um, but even now that I'm editing it, I'm cutting out even some of the dialogue that I wrote that, you know, as I'm looking at it was totally unnecessary. Um, and that just goes to my lack of experience um, with writing um, and it's you know I'm not a natural writer at all it is a chore for me um, but you know you do what you need to do um, sometimes just just to just to move forward um, so hoping eventually that I can hook up with maybe a couple of writers um, so that I can you know whatever their ideas are plus my ideas we can come together and collaborate but that's not there for me yet. So until that is, I'll keep writing. Throughout our conversation, you have pointed out different points where I think you got some confirmation that you made the right decision to follow your creative spirit. Am I missing any other points where you knew for sure that this was confirmation that you did the right thing? Um, I would say first, the first thing I knew is that I didn't want to work in corporate America anymore. I lost my job unexpectedly and I went to a career fair, um, you know, because up to that point, I still only knew, you know, the 40 hour work week and the corporate world. So I went to this career fair and it just didn't feel right. I probably was there about 15 minutes. I don't even know if I even visited a table or a booth. And I left. And when I left, I was so relieved and felt overcome with joy that I knew that that world was over for me. I didn't know where I was going, but that was done. Um, and I am a person who, I have intuition and I follow my intuition. Um, I follow my gut. I don't necessarily have to know why. I know that down the road it'll be revealed. 
Um, and that particular day I did, I just followed my intuition. Um, and it just happened to be during the time that um, the market crashed and the economy crashed. So I collected unemployment for about three years and I just took different classes and different courses and tried to find my way. Um, that was the first, I think that was the first um, day that I realized that I wanted to do something else. And what I would say about confirmation is my husband's going to kill me when I say this, but we had to tap into my 401k one year. Um, and just to make it through the year, right? It's difficult. You're just starting out, right? By the next year, God had replaced that money. So that's when I knew I'm on the right track. <laughs> I don't know how long it's going to take, but I'm on the right track. I have not received a steady paycheck since, I don't know, 2000, it's been a while, 2007. And I've never been happier. You know, there are moments, you know, when you worry about finances, but I've not been happier. And my husband could, he's so supportive. He has the, he has the, the steady job. He has the insurance. Um, so I don't have to worry about that, that either. So we're doing okay. So with this film um, that I just shot, um, what can also confirm for me that I was headed in the right direction is I was looking for a location for such a long time and I couldn't find anything that was priced reasonably. So then we decided to look at Airbnbs, but generally Airbnbs don't like to rent um, for production. But we found this one space in Newark that was absolutely beautiful. We, it, was, it was a price that we could afford. Um, I couldn't even believe it. Um, how beautiful this place was. It was perfect. A price that we could afford. Um, and then the Friday, we raised all the money that we needed. Um, and, you know, for our first fundraiser, we raised all the money, all the funds that we needed. And then the day before, we were picking up equipment and my mom had an emergency. She had to have an emergency procedure as we were trying to deliver the equipment to the location. And um, it turns out that she did have the procedure, but I didn't have to go. My sister stayed with my mom and took care of her. I went to see her the next morning, and then we came back in the evening and we shot. And confirmation is that everything just went so smoothly um, from start to finish. You know, not everything's going to be perfect, and none of it's perfect, right? There are a lot of mistakes, but generally, the schedule that we created, the rehearsal that we put in, um, it just went so smoothly. Everything fell into place for this. I found the actors. We did a casting call. I found the actors. We did the fundraising. We raised the money. We found a location, you know, within a budget that we could afford. Um, I had my first intern ever who was amazing. Um, and everything just fell into place. Um, and those things don't happen for a reason. Yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, there are things that go wrong, but that's just to build character, right? And that's what happened also that weekend, the things that went wrong. It built character for me and helped um, also for me to be better for the next time. So that was also confirmation. Too many things lined up perfectly. 
what is the process like? Because you've described, you know, putting people together, setting schedules, budgeting, fundraising. Do you have a team that's working with you or are you doing the majority of those required tasks on your own? Yeah, I'm it. Um, <laughs> so I'm setting up, you know, I'm looking for the cast, I'm setting up the casting calls. Um, you know, I'm setting the production schedule. Um, I'm setting uh, so many, you know, location times. Um, I'm, I'm creating the shot list. Um, I had a director of photography that I eventually went over the shot list with, but ultimately I created the shot list. Um, but I use a, a program that helps me break down dressing as well. I have a program that helped me break that down. So I do all of those things and I tell people, um, so, you know, this is going to be your role. I'm going to create the document and then I'm going to go over it with you, but this is your role. So normally on a team, you would, you would sort of delegate those things, but you know, I'm just starting out. So I'm basically doing all of those roles and then I'm sort of um, trying to teach people how to do it. But one of the things that I did learn, which is important is you, you have to have people on set who want to do what you're doing as well and not just want to help you, right? Because there's a different level of seriousness that comes along with people who want to do what you're doing as opposed to my friends who are just helping me out. Right. So that's a big lesson that I learned. Um, and it's not to say that I don't appreciate my friends. That's not the point. But some things would have gone better if they had the same kind of drive for filmmaking that I did. So that was a big, big lesson that I learned. And you you seem to have um, an innate desire to tell stories of the unheard. Um, is the I'm not a threat going to spin off into a book as well? I am, I would have to say that I'm right now praying about what to do with that. Um, I hadn't thought about a book, um, but I am praying about it because I know that there's more. I don't know what the more is. Initially, I thought about a podcast. I thought maybe about doing some video interviews um and nothing has felt right yet um so i i am um, trying to exhibit some self-control right and sort of wait and see and see what comes but i know that there is more because that is just a minute right it's only a minute and i know that these men have stories so i i need to figure that out. So I, I would say that I'm just in the process of praying and waiting right now. You know, it's so compelling because I have read testimonials of, I think it started with a number of years ago, Quest Love spoke about being a tall black male and going into spaces like elevators and uh, having to act distracted by a phone call so as to not have the other person fearful. And right. 
as he described those elements I recognized in those spaces, I'd been doing the same thing, even mm. without thinking about it. Mm. I'll go into an elevator and I'll pretend to be distracted by my phone, mm. just so as not to have the other person feel threatened. And as you described, the I am a threat ties into our, our own anxiety, our own, all the, all the elements. Right. And, and so now I'm wondering, um, and the reason I asked about the book is because I think what we are kind of identifying as well is we can't um, appropriately behave our way out of having other people not feel threatened. Right, right. And that's its own burden. Right, right, yeah, yeah. I, I honestly just don't even know how <laughs> the black men live with it. And, you know, you've internalized it to the point that you don't even recognize it, but it's affecting you. You know, it's like, you know, this whole pandemic and they're wondering why, you know, black people are so susceptible to it. Well, you know, there's slavery, right? <laughs> and then there's what happened after that, right? And there are so many, so many systematic situations put in place to oppress us you know and we had to find ways to live with that and it's taken a toll on our health on our mental stability you know we have to we can't even live our truth right as 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 human beings who happen to be black we can't even live our truth um so I, I just don't know how, so I've always had an affinity for the black man because that's always something I've always recognized um, and never understood. Um, so I just don't know how you guys go out from day to day and sort of live with that and deal with that. And, you know, I try to be, you know, as supportive as I can. I don't generalize with black men at all. Um, you know, I listen to my husband when he speaks <laughs> he does he's not a big talker but when he does i try to be there to listen to him and i don't try to um tell him what he's feeling i'm listening to what he's telling me about what he's feeling because i can't even though i'm his wife i can't understand what he's going through just like he can't understand what i go through also as a black woman and that's a whole other story so <laughs> and it ties into I think the burden of your work, because I think so often black women tell our stories because we don't have a voice and they tell them in compassionate, um, affirming ways. But I think at the same time, you're also pained because you recognize the black woman also struggles, also is punished also, and the list goes on and on and on. Right, right. Um, but you know, there's a part of us that needs to be the backbone for our black men, right? Because who else are they going to be able to be so vulnerable and open with, right? Men aren't necessarily that way with men, but you know, so we do, we do a lot and suck up a lot, but you know, it is what it is. <laughs> so do you believe, um, and you could humor me, your, um, your passion for telling the stories of the underdog also ties into the fact that you're um, a Nick fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you, uh, 
Do you have an affinity for men who are winners within, but the results don't always show? <laughs> that's exactly right. I am also very loyal. So that speaks to my loyalty. Um, the fact that I'm a Nick fan. I mean, I've been a Nick fan since the 80s. Um, and I just do not believe in jumping ship. I'm a basketball fan generally, so I appreciate the sport and I appreciate players and other teams and the way other um, organizations run. But I'm a Nick fan for life. Um, but I am also, I'd like to say, a level-headed Nick fan. I am not, um, they are what they are. And, you know, I can either leave or not leave and just wait through the process and <laughs> hope that this year will be better than the next and the next and the next. I think they're on the right track right now. Um, but again, we'll see, right? We've thought they were on the right track before. Um, you know, I have my own uh, opinions about <laughs> certainly what Phil Jackson did to Carmelo Anthony was shameful. Um, absolutely shameful. He was the first star that came here willingly wanted to be here and I can't even believe what he did to that man's reputation but anyway um and they've just made a lot of bad decisions pretty much but you know hopefully um they're on the right track we have the young guy who wants to be here that you know we'll see what happens if they can build some things around him I love Mitchell Robinson um absolutely love his upside and we'll see I wish they would call me I'd love to work with them <laughs> You no doubt have uh, stories that need to be told. Um, I'm inspired by other Black filmmakers as well, and I'm sure you've heard the comparisons to people like Abba DuVernay and her telling a story I thought I'd heard prior with the, the exonerated, um, just remind me of the number, is it five? Five. Mm -hmm. Exonerated five. And her retelling, recasting, and humanizing those young men. I thought we had heard pretty much all the stories because there was a documentary prior, I believe, right. by someone else. Right. How consuming is storytelling for a filmmaker? Um, well, I'm not, I haven't gotten into the depths of something like what Ava has done. And she's, she's my favorite um, director. I have a list of them, but she's at the top for me. I think that her ability to tell a story. I've never seen anyone tell stories um, in the way that she tells stories. And I don't even mean just documentaries. On her website, she has a couple of short pieces, one called The Door. Um, and I believe it's like a fashion story, but the way that she told the story, it's so beautiful. I have, I can't, I've watched that thing countless times. I've watched it without sound, just so I can see what is actually going on. Um, so I'm not there yet, although I do have a documentary in mind that I've had the idea for about six years now. Um, and I think that I might, it's daunting though. Um, I think that I might want to start moving towards that. Um, it'll be a big documentary and it's about the church. Um, um, and church and religion and um that's going to be daunting um to tell but i think i might start moving towards that you know in about a year or so 
you know, that's going to take a team. That's not something that I can just do by myself. Um, there'll be a lot of like historical research that needs to be done. Lots of conversations. The interviews will be the easy part, to be honest. Um, identifying people will be difficult. Um, and then deciding which way, which direction you want to go because you don't want, you want to stay focused on what the, what the documentary is about. And, you know, you've got to make sure you know exactly what you want to do so that when you do start talking to people, they don't start staring you in other directions. So I am uh, looking forward to tackling that one day, but I just don't know when. I, I don't know if I'm ready for it yet, but maybe in about a year or two. And the story of John A. Kenny, mm -hmm. a work in progress. I am waiting basically for, I'm the producer for that. I'm waiting for the pandemic um, to be over and then we'll start um, the process of interviewing people. But Dr. Kenny was, um, he was a doctor. He was also the personal physician of George Washington Carver and Booker T. Washington. Um, at the Tuskegee Institute, and he founded the first full-service hospital for African-Americans at Tuskegee. And then he came to Newark, and he created a hospital for people in the, in the third ward in Newark. And the building where the hospital was housed is now a church, and the church is creating a museum to honor him and his legacy. And I'm tasked with um, producing a short um, about his legacy and his impact. So. You know, I was actually supposed to get started on that shortly before the pandemic. So we're just waiting for that to be over to get going with that. Well, we don't know if it, when it'll be over, but hopefully. Uh, I am not um, ready to sort of socially um, put myself out there um, and produce anything yet. Um, again, trying to stay safe for my mom. And also this particular project will be dealing with a lot of older people um, so trying to also think about them and their safety as well. So we'll see what happens. What is producing like? How is that different than, you know, creating? Are they one and the same? No, they're different, but I'm everything. So I'm the filmmaker slash producer for this project. So the, the producer basically supports the filmmaker, right? So like the thing where I talked about earlier about fundraising, um, you know, the producer would take care of that sort of thing, helping to find locations, and the producer would help support the, the filmmaker and the things that they need to get done. So I don't have the burden of, you know, worrying about contacting people to get money in. I don't have the burden of that where I can stay focused on the actual project. And for listeners who want to follow your work, we've discussed extensively the I Am Not a Threat uh, series and your visual artistry, how can listeners find your work and follow your journey? Sure, so you can find me on IG um, under Vanessa Blake, which is my personal IG and my professional IG is Summer Shower Pro. I am on Facebook at the same names, Vanessa Blake and Summer Shower Productions. I'm on Twitter at Summer Shower, but you can also find everything on my website at summershowerproductions.com. Any final words, Vanessa, for creatives who are in that space where they feel that tug, that pull, mm -hmm. and um, they just need some confirmation that this is a journey they should take? Do you have any wise counsel for those who 
are perhaps trying to maybe step out on faith like you did? So I don't know if I stepped out on faith as much as I was pushed out, um, right? Because that job that I hated for 10 years, the last 10 years that I did it was taken away from me. So I was pushed out. But I would say if you want to move, you have to move. There's no other way around it, right? If you want to move towards your, that thing that you want to do, I don't know if it's writing a book or starting a podcast or becoming a photographer, none of it will happen if you don't move towards it. Um, you need to, you don't know what it'll be um, if you don't start moving towards it. Um, if it is the right thing for you, you'll be surprised at how things start falling into place for you. Um, I think you just have to take the leap um, and move forward because I personally don't want to live a life of regrets. Um, I don't want to be on my deathbed saying, oh, I should have, I, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to try to move towards everything that I think is going to be fulfilling for me. Some things will work out, some things won't. Some th you'll, you'll realize that some things, oh, I just have a passing interest in that. Um, and then you'll, or you'll come across that thing that you're really supposed to do. Um, I love dream chases. I love people who are chasing their dreams but are afraid. Um, and anytime someone tells me that, oh, I'm thinking to do this, but I try to talk to them and let them know it's not always going to be easy, but you're going to be so much more fulfilled if you're chasing that dream, that thing that's inside of you. So I don't know, hopefully that inspires someone um, to move forward. And I mentioned earlier that Vanessa is a visual artist available for events, uh, weddings, uh, engagement parties, birthdays, etc. Do you have a bucket list of places that if, you, if given the opportunity, you would love to just shoot shots and you would shoot all day without fail? Um, I don't know. I, I, I wanna go to Africa. So I would say that's at the top of my list. Um, I've already been to Cuba. Um, I've been to Paris and Barcelona. Uh, London, um, but I can pretty much walk around anywhere and find something that catches my eye or catches my interest. So I think Africa's probably up there. Um, and then my husband and I talk all the time about just getting in a car or an RV and driving across America. So that would be um, another thing that I would love to do, just drive across the country and sort of capture that um, with still photography. So yeah, I'm excited for that. Hopefully that'll happen one day. <laughs> We've been talking about it for a while. Awesome. Vanessa Blake, thank you so much. You gave us a lot of great nuggets and your journey, uh, your stories you told about some of the things that inspired you inspired me as well. And I'm hoping in turn, our listeners will be inspired by the conversation we had. I'll post in our episode notes, ways to follow, ways to keep updated, ways to find uh, Vanessa's work. And we're praying for your journey that 
uh, your territories territories will expand and um, we will see more of your work uh, pretty soon. Thank you for what you've done already in terms of addressing our unheard voices and we look forward to your work in the future as well. Thank you so much for having me. So listen, when mom sees me, I swear she sees the kid that she raised who grew to be a strong young man, simple and plain. When y'all see me, y'all wonder if he's gripping a gauge to get a minister sprayed, living with sinister ways. When pop sees me, I swear he sees a bright young vet, straight laced how he's living, taking righteous steps. When cops see me, they see me as a prime suspect, arms behind you. You can't tell your side just yet. When the wife sees me, I swear she sees a peaceful male who doesn't cheat or yell because his ego's frail. When the whites see me, they think I've been to three, four jails or have the nerve to say, oh, wow, he speaks so well. When grandma sees me, she still sees that baby boy without a care, just running and breaking toys. But when the damn law sees me, they making up their mind and want to do me like how they did the exonerated five. I'm a loyal, college-educated, hardworking, married man. Growing my wisdom to inspire is my only plan. So a message across the East and across the West. I am a black man and I am not a threat.